Well, I don't know what kind of TV shows you guys like to watch, but uh, my family have been actually going through the episodes of Twilight Zone. Uh, those are actually in black and white. I don't know if you realize this, but the whole world, kids, was in black and white before 1950. It's really weird. Color really scared people. But uh, if you look at Twilight Zone, it, it, it's an interesting uh, series of, of episodes because all of them have this kind of moral meaning to them. And it's really usually pretty good. Uh, the first episode begins with this guy named Mike who lands in this city. And it doesn't tell you why, but there's no people in this city. In fact, it looks like somebody just left breakfast cooking and, and they were out of there. And so this guy sort of makes himself at home traveling around the city, visiting all of these empty diners and banks and all of these kinds of things. And as the episode moves on, he moves from being kind of excited about the freedom to paranoid. He's like, where is everybody? And by the end, you find him going mad when he's eventually woken up from a state of sleep that he's been in for over 400 hours, and these guys have been keeping him in this, this capsule where they've been sort of trying to get a feel for how would this guy do on a trip to the moon, experiencing all of the loneliness that that would entail. And as the episode closes... Uh, the doctor explains while he was going crazy. He said, you know, we've been able to figure out an answer for how to feed people. We've been able to figure out an answer for uh, how we can make sure that uh, they're able to, to go to the bathroom, even be entertained and worked out. But the one thing that we have not been able to cure is this human hunger for companionship and the barrier of loneliness. See, we as humans were made for community. You were made for community. God created you for that. And so as we are thinking about our 2020 Clarity series this morning, uh, we want to think about uh, the reality of what it means to be about the, the mission of making disciple-making disciples and planning disciple-making churches. And as we've done that, we've shown that Jesus builds local churches to both make and to mature disciples for the glory of his name. And all of that is always with an eye towards planting more churches until Jesus gets back. Flourishing Christian disciples disciple one another as they look for Jesus' return to come back and restore all things. Now, we've shown this slide uh, last week. We're showing it this week. We'll show it again next week. And this is what we call our, our tri-core uh, method of discipleship here at Trinity Bible Church. And what this means is, is that uh, we have three kinds of relationships that we think are important for you as you're making disciples. We need to see you uh, be a part of gathered worship. You need gathered worship. We saw that last week. Uh, this week, we're going to show that we think that community groups are important as part of the disciple-making process. And then finally, next week, we'll talk about one-to-one -one discipleship. And you'll notice that dot. That dot is you in the midst of all of those relationships. That is where we believe that you are being made and matured into a better disciple here at Trinity Bible Church. Now catch this, I know that sometimes life circumstances can make involvement in one or both or all three of these very difficult. In another sense, I believe if we think about it rightly, we can always find a reason why it's hard to make it into any one of these relationships, right? There's always an excuse. Well, I've mentioned a study by David Eagle, I've said it again and again, that he did this postdoc dissertation for Duke where he was studying megachurches. And here's the thing that he found. He found that as he was looking at megachurches, many of them are growing as uh, transfer growth is coming from smaller churches that are shutting down. Now, we are not saying that large churches are good and small churches are bad, right? 
Uh, I've told you there are large churches that are healthy. There are large churches that are unhealthy. There are small churches that are healthy. There are small churches that are unhealthy. That's not what we're saying. But it was interesting. As he was studying these megachurches and their growth, he was evaluating what is it that they value. A lot of these folks that are joining these churches, and here's the number one value that he found amongst those transferring to these churches. Anonymity. He said most of them enjoy being anonymous, having people not notice if they are there or not. Now, the bigger the church, the less likely people are to attend regularly. The less likely others are to notice. And like individualism, anonymity is at enmity with a kind of biblical accountability and community that surfaces all over the pages of the New Testament as we read it. See, I think 1 Corinthians 14 says that if we are eager for manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Are you eager to see the Holy Spirit at work amongst you? Anybody here? Come on. Anybody here want to see the Holy Spirit at work? I do. Well, what we find in 1 Corinthians 12 is that it calls for an all-hands-in approach. The eyeballs and the feet and the the hands and the feet and the, the whole body needs to be working together for the purpose of this, building up the church. As we build up the church, we see manifestations of the Holy Spirit at work. And building up the church comes from an increasing gospel clarity of the Scriptures. Paul says, I want to see gifts that are making the gospel clear. That's what builds the church better. So when we see this, what we understand is an increasing gospel clarity leads to an increasing gospel culture shaped by the gospel. See, we long for gospel doctrine to be clear. We long for that. But we also know that we want a gospel community that looks like the gospel that we believe, full of mercy and grace and truth and hope. So we want to think about how is it that we bring these two things together. I love what Ray Ortland's simple but profound formula shows in his book, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. If you haven't seen that great book, he's going to be here for a marriage conference coming up soon. But here's what Ray says in that book. He says, gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. In other words, if you are all about the truth in your doctrine, but not in your practice, and in the way that you are loving and living life with one another, you don't, you don't look real. You look hypocritical. He, he then says, gospel culture minus gospel doctrine, that's dangerous too. That is fragility. In other words, if you are not grounded in the truth, when hard things hit, you are going to find yourself swinging away from the gospel and not looking like a hopeful people. But then he says this, this is where the power comes in. When your gospel doctrine meets gospel culture, it is a powerful display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. To create this kind of gospel culture that is effulgent with the power of the gospel, we don't need less than gathered worship. You need to be here on Sundays, worshiping together with your brothers and sisters. Gathered worship is critical. We don't need less than gathered worship for a vibrant gospel culture, but we do need more. So your elders believe that community groups play a unique and important role in making disciples. And where you can be, these contexts are where you can be known in a way that you can't amongst hundreds of people gathering together on a Sunday morning. So human flourishing is as much we find in the New Testament about today and how we are living with others as it is about the last day. Those two realities are critical for us. So we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11 this morning. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn out to 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. 
And here what we're going to see is the Apostle Peter is writing this letter to a mostly Gentile audience of churches throughout Roman-occupied Asia Minor. These folks, they're experiencing, as recent believers, uh, all kinds of persecutions, from sporadic persecutions to the occasional political persecution. And in that context, they are waiting for the return of Jesus, and Peter reminds them of their new identity. He says, that's important. You need to know who you are and your eternal destiny, which is glorious. Don't forget these two realities. And as he goes through this, he reminds them that they are chosen exiles. Maybe they just feel like exiles. But he says, I want you to know that you are chosen exiles, chosen by God, that he's doing something glorious that you aren't seeing You are in Christ and in his new covenant, and you are about grand purposes. See, they were once hopeless Gentiles far from God, and now they are God's chosen people who look expectantly for Christ to return on that last day. So in 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11, we'll see this big idea, this main point, that Jesus' imminent return propels us into deeper community with God and others. Jesus' imminent return, he's returning soon, it should propel us into deeper community with both God and others. Look with me in 1 Peter 4 at what he says. He says this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. This morning, as we come before you, we just ask that you would help us. There are all kinds of things that are going on in each of our lives that could distract us from our greatest need in this moment, and that is to hear from your word. So, Lord, speak to us. Speak to your children. Words of life. Lord, speak words of life to those who do not believe you, who are here today, who are struggling even to care. Lord, we pray that you would invade their hearts with the goodness, the sweetness of your gospel. And it's the great name of your son that we do pray. Amen. Here's my first point. It's this. It's Peter's point, the end is near. The end is near. Now, I, I once had a man in my office. I was with another elder, and he had come in. His life was falling apart, and he sat down to talk with us. And one of the first things that he said was, I don't get anything out of your preaching. And my elder looked at me and was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And uh, he said, well, why don't you explain what you mean by that to us? And uh, I'm listening intently, just trying to figure out, like, what's going on? And he said, well, you're always talking about Jesus coming back. Like, that's a big deal. And I just don't get what the deal is about Jesus coming back and how that really has any kind of implications for my everyday life. We tried to explain to him that the last day makes all the difference for the people of God. But he walked out and he proceeded to soon thereafter lose his job, his wife, his church. And all of that, I believe, connected to not understanding fully the importance 
of the last day for believers. See, the most important days of your life are two days, today and the last day. Those are the the days that matter the most. Every day that you live actually says something about the way that you see that last day. So if you were to look at today, what does it say about the way that you look at the last day? Well, 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6, we find that Peter has his mind fixed on this last day. Peter encouraged Christians experiencing that relational pressure from non-Christian friends and family to remember the last day. Don't forget that day as you're being mistreated when Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. See, if we're getting really caught up in today and we start to lose perspective on what matters, it is a good thing to sober ourselves by thinking about the greater day that's coming and that judgment. You will think about your enemies differently. You'll think about yourself differently. But Peter continues that same thought into verse 7 declaring this, the end of all things is at hand. He has not let go of this idea of the last day. He's pressing into it. See, the end of all things will be a devastating, apocalyptic day for those outside of Christ. But it will also be the most beautiful day, the most glorious day ever for those who are in Christ. See, this quick phrase, the end of all things is at hand, serves as what I call the imminent apocalyptic impetus. You like that? Like, I just got lost. It is the imminent. There is something coming soon, according to the scriptures. Apocalyptic, that's speaking of the the end days. And an impetus, something that ought to be a catalyst that drives us. And it drives the rest of these verses. These all, these verses that we're talking about this morning, hang on the idea that the last day matters. See, he's not the only one that thought that the last day matters, Peter. He's not the only guy. In fact, all of the apostles in Jesus communicate the reality that the last day matters. If you go through the New Testament, you'll find that it is actually riddled with encouragements to use the last day to shape every day, each and every day. Just think about it. Paul. Paul uses the last day to encourage Christians in Philippians 1.6 saying, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the last day. He not only uses it for encouragement, he also uses it for warning in Ephesians 4.30, where Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's not just Paul and Peter, James in 5.7.8. In James 5.7-8, James says this, he says, all Christians need to be patient. Why? Because the day of the Lord is at hand. Or what about Hebrews that we looked at last week? Consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And Jesus himself, speaking of the resurrection that awaits his people, says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him on that last day. And John, he warns in 1 John 2.18 that the proliferation of false antichrist that are everywhere in his day suggests that it's not just the last days, but even the last hour. So Jesus, James, Paul, Hebrews, John, 
they all say the last day should, la- should shape our every day. Do you see that? It's important for them. If you want to live well today, you need to be thinking about the last day. Now, before we move forward, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, I, I get what you're saying, but Peter, didn't he say this 2,000 years ago? I mean, talk about a swing and a miss. Should we still feel and fear that the end is near 2,000 years later? I think Tom Schreiner is really helpful in his commentary when he writes this. He says, the reason the end is near is that the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have inaugurated the last days. All that is left is for Jesus to return. We're in the last stage or day of redemptive history before Jesus comes back. Now, Christians may disagree over how Jesus will come back, but all Christians are in unanimous agreement that Jesus will come back. See, the Bible assures you that you will be surprised when it happens, but you shouldn't be surprised that it happens. Be ready. Because the return of Christ is closer than when we first believed. And that day ought to shape our every day. And if that day doesn't come first, it could be that our death does. We will be before the Lord to give an account. But there's a second thing that we notice in this text. All of this hinging from the fact that it is the last day. Notice in verse 7, the second part, the last day drives us to commune with God in prayer. Did you see that? I love this. You just imagine for a second that you know the end is coming. The apocalypse is at hand. Many movies have been made about this. I've never, been, I've never seen a movie made about the apocalypse uh, that didn't have like zombies or like some kind of asteroid or some kind of like weird outbreak. Uh, I've never seen one though made uh, about 1 Peter 4, 7. See here you'll notice that there's an interesting way that he turns the, the conversation. I don't know what you think you would do on the last day. Martin Luther, he was writing Uh, back during the Reformation, and somebody asked him, what would you do if you knew it was the last day? And he famously replied this, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. Now, uh, I think that's what he said. I think he actually said that. And what Luther meant was that he lived every day as though it was his last. And that meant faithfulness to each day's commitments until the end. So if you knew the end was coming, would that mean a more faithful life? Or would it mean a less faithful life? See, Peter says the last day should drive us towards community with God. Should drive us towards community with God, and in a minute we'll say, and others. Now in verse 7, Peter says this, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now self-control, that just means to keep your head, right? Don't lose control. I don't know if you've ever seen someone lose control. Maybe you have a kid who's lost control. Maybe you lost control on the way to church this morning, right? Your kids weren't getting dressed fast enough. Somebody wasn't getting in the car on time. Somebody spilled coffee on you. Something like that. We need to be self-controlled. It's kind of like the football coach in a close game in the fourth quarter. Pulls his team together and he says, keep your head in the game, right? Don't lose focus on what you need to be focused on. But not only be self-controlled, he says be sober-minded. Now, sober-minded isn't just talking about the reality that you shouldn't drink too much. That's not what he's saying. See, anger, jealousy, bitterness, impatience, covetousness, and a host of other non-alcoholic spirits can disrupt a sober mind, right? So just catch Peter's point here. 
Because the end is near, we need to protect our prayers. I, think, I take this to mean that prayers matter. Peter's saying your prayers are important as the last day is coming. We have not because we ask not. We also lose faith when we don't speak to God. But what is prayer? Well, prayer is simply talking to the triune God, speaking to him. The God who has spoken to you, speaking back to him. Now that might seem like a, a casual or even passive way to approach something as big as an apocalypse. Maybe you're thinking, if the end is near, I mean, we need to get out of here and do something, right? You, you, maybe that's what you would write if you were the apostle. Like, the end is near, like you need to scream and run around like Chicken Little. Sky's falling. But Paul says the first step, as you see the end is coming, is to pray. In other words, don't let the, the nearness of Jesus' return distract you from the hearness of God's presence. So we have the Spirit of Christ in us. And Jesus mediating relationship with us, with the Father, who gladly gives ear to his children. Did you know that? Did you know that your heavenly Father loves to hear the voice of his children crying out to him? In fact, it upsets him when his children don't cry out to him for help. So we have the Spirit of Christ in us doing that. And also, don't let the nearness of Jesus' return distract you from your neediness for something that only God can do. See, an alert mind, it recognizes our dependence on God. From the, the day that we gasp our first breath to the last day when we bow with all of the rest of, of humanity, like we see in Philippians 2, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are always desperately needy for God. An alert mind recognizes that absolute dependence upon him. And finally, don't let the nearness of Jesus' return escape your thoughts. It's so easy to, to forget that there's a great day that's coming. You know, you get a bill in the mail. And the last thing you're thinking about is the last day. You're thinking about today and how, how you're going to make that bill. Or maybe you have a, a child that is struggling with a disability and, and the last thing that you're thinking about in that moment is the last day. It's easy for us to become distracted. You know, I feel like the, the cartoon where, you know, the, the squirrel runs by and it's always distracting. It's like, squirrel, like we were mid-focus like focus and, and a squirrel went by and distracted me. And there are all kinds of distractions in this world that we go squirrel and we forget the coming end that is at hand. See, speaking to God, praying to him, it protects us from drunk thinking. You can smell drunk thinking on a Christian in the same way you can smell booze on a drunk. You know what it smells like? It smells like cynicism. It smells like I don't believe that there's hope in this moment. I don't trust God and others. I am cynical. In fact, I, I like what Paul Miller says in his book on prayer, Praying Life. A uh, great book if you haven't read it. But Paul Miller in that book says this. He says, cynicism which doesn't feel like gospel community, by the way, and the power that I think Ray Ortland was encouraging. Cynicism's different. It, it begins, oddly enough, with too much of the wrong kind of faith, with naive optimism or foolish confidence. I might say, I, I like optimists up front. He goes on to say, at first glance, genuine faith and naive optimism appear identical since both foster confidence and hope. Those are good things. But the similarity is only surface deep. Genuine faith comes from knowing my heavenly Father loves, enjoys, 
and cares for me. Naive optimism is groundless. It is childlike trust without the loving father. And the movement from naive optimism to cynicism is the new American journey. In naive optimism, we don't need to pray because everything is under control. In cynicism, we can't pray because everything is out of control. Little is possible. We pray because we believe God is able to do more than we can think or imagine. It keeps our eyes fixed on who he is. See, cynicism usually reveals that we don't think enough about the last day. Near struggles inebriate us to both the nearness of Christ and the far-reaching promises of God. Naive optimism comes from a lack of good doctrine that's battle-tested. Disappointment leads to cynicism, which leads to less prayer because we don't trust God. We, when we don't commune with God, we will inevitably fail to commune with his people. Notice that's exactly where Peter goes. He moves from prayer to the community in 8 to 11, where we find our third point, the last day. This is it. The last day should drive us to love one another in community. The last day should drive us. It should drive us to prayer and it should drive us to community. So catch this. Here in these verses, we find three of those 60 one another's that we find in the New Testament. Now one another normally speaks to the committed relationships Christians live out in the context of the local church. And Peter says the last day should press us into a loving community with our local church every day. I know that sometimes it can feel like the last day is getting further and further away as you're growing weary in trying to do good. Have you ever experienced that, that sense? You know, there's some days where it feels like Jesus could come back any moment, but as I'm trying to be faithful and things are difficult, it almost feels like it's an elusive kind of end, that it's getting further and further away. I get that feeling. I don't have to work hard to feel unappreciated and unimportant on one hand and over-important and proud on the other. My heart tends towards that. Self-centeredness is the natural entity of my soul if I don't tend to it. Catch that. Self-centeredness is the natural entropy of my soul if I don't tend to it. it. It begins to fall apart if I'm not caring rightly for my soul and the ways the scriptures say I should care for my soul. So how do I tend to my soul as I wait for that last day? Maybe you're thinking like first line of protection is a really good quiet time, right? Now quiet times are good. Like, I am, you're not hearing the pastor say, yeah, don't spend time alone in the word and prayer. That's not what I'm saying. But what I do want to draw your attention to is what Peter says. And when Peter is talking about how you protect yourself against that last day, how you prepare yourself for the coming of Jesus, he says, pay attention to your prayers, be sober in your thinking, right? Good way to be sober in your thinking is spending time in the word of God. But the second thing is press into community. See, did you notice what Peter says in verse 8? Above all. Now, if somebody says above all, that means it's kind of important what they're about to say, right? So what does he say? Above all what? Above all, he says this in verse 8. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I don't want to get too complicated here, but you know one another does not mean every other, right? Now, I, I don't think that Peter's saying, like, you know, love Christians and you don't have to, like, treat other people, like, good at all. doesn't matter. You can be mean to them. 
That's not what he's saying. We know that elsewhere he says that we need to even love our enemies. But here, I think what he has in mind is a particular kind of love, the love that you experience in committed community of other Christians like what you find in a local church. In other words, Peter's not saying here love every other one generally. There's a way that that's true. He's saying love one another specifically. And he's already defined that one another in 1 Peter 1.23. They are those who have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Speaking of the gospel, through the living and abiding word of God. These are people who have been born again. They are spiritual people, part of the children of God. And Jesus said the same thing in John 13, 34 to 35. You remember there, he's preparing the disciples to depart. And as he's doing that, he says, I want you to do this as I'm about to go to the cross. Love one another as I have loved you. And by this love, all men will know that you are my disciples. They will smell me all over you if you are loving one another in the way that I have called you to love, in the way that I have loved you. See, our number one priority on the last day is the same priority every day, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about that. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I I know that some of you, that might be like kind of a a hard abstract ideas are difficult, right? Like, okay, the invisible church, whatever. Uh, Here's just something to help this get real, real quick. Look to your left at a person not the wall. And look to your right. It's kind of weird. You look at the back of everybody's head. I didn't think about that beforehand. Uh, kind of weird. Uh, but those are people that are to your left and to your right. Humans created in the image of God. Many of them members of the church who've been born again by the power of the gospel. You, you want to know where you're supposed to, to put your energy as you're waiting that last day? What is it spiritually that you're going to do to prepare you for that last day? Love that person next to you. You say, well, that's kind of hard. You're not easy either. It's true. If you think I'm easy to love, just ask my wife. Not true. But there's something beautiful and glorious about it. It's a calling from God. It's something that will, he promises, prepare you for the last day when he returns through the clouds full of glory to take up his people. We matter. Not just you, but the people that are all around you matter. This is what we've been called to do as we wait for that day. See, that's the above all priority. It's a a keep keeping on loving kind of consistency that Peter is calling for that we love one another with. So what standard of measurement have you been using to evaluate how prepared you are for the return of Jesus? Maybe you've been thinking about your quiet times and you're doing great at that. Uh, And that is important. God's people need God's word. But maybe you've been thinking about not just that, but how you've been evangelizing others in the past week. Like that's preparing me, and and that's not bad. That's how we, we ought to live. We ought to live to love to tell others about Jesus and the hope that's stored up in him. But Peter says, above all, above all, this apostle says, you ought to be loving one another, other Christians in your local church, more and more as you see that day approaching. In fact, Jesus says our best evangelistic weapon is sacrificial love for one another. We see a sacrificial nature to the love when Peter says, since love covers a multitude of sins. You might think, that's kind of weird. That sounds strange. Uh, What does he mean love covers a multitude of sins? Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that our love 
can atone for the sins of others. Our love can make others right with God by just how loving we are. So he's saying when we love one another sacrificially, in the way that Jesus has loved us, we are forbearing or overlooking sins and offenses that are against us. We give people the benefit of the doubt. We trust their motives. We hope the best in them. We love them. Doesn't that sound like a good community where everybody's committed to that? Not saying that we don't like challenge or rebuke people if they're living in unrepentant sin, but where our impulse is to want the best and hope the best for people. I think that's exactly the kind of thing that Peter's saying. This isn't cynicism, which sometimes a a really big head for, for knowledge can turn into judgmentalism, cynicism. It's not that. He is saying that this is actually not that kind of uh mental uh, uh, sort of leaning that says, I'm thinking about conspiracy theories, about what others are thinking about me and doing and what their motives are. It's not a trigger figure. For, uh, tri- blah, blah. You ever had trouble like getting words out? Thank you. But it's not a quick trigger finger for judgment. Some of y'all are judging me right now about how I'm talking. And condemnation of others. Those things don't come from the gospel. See, forgiveness, patience, gentleness, and being quick to listen, those are spiritual gifts and fruits that smell like the gospel. They're glorious. And take note of two particular ways Peter says that we should love one another. First, in verse 9, he says, share your home. And second, he says in verses 10 to 11, share your gifts. Share your home and share your gifts. Uh, Notice first in verse 9, he says, be hospitable with one another. Did you see that in the text? He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality comes from a combo combo of words. A word that means stranger. And a word that says, show love for. And so the idea is showing love for a stranger in those words coming together. It speaks of how Christians ought to open their homes to those in need. You'll remember That Abraham and Sarah, there's that beautiful picture in Genesis 18 where they show hospitality to visitors who come to them and it ends up actually being the Lord himself. And in Hebrews 13 too, we're encouraged with this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. See, before AAA, road signs, QT, or the Motel 6 left the lights on for us, we find that this idea of hospitality was a critical issue of life and death for sojourners and exiles. Those who were exiles out of the land, visiting other places, they needed to be welcomed in. It was an issue of life and death. They had nowhere to go. It was dangerous not to have someone to invite them into their homes. Notice here, though, Peter isn't so heavenly-minded that he's no earthly good. Peter says heavenly-minded people open their earthly homes. Like, if you love other people, you give them cookies. And you don't just give them the cheap, nasty cookies, right? You give them the good cookies. I know some of you, like, people come over, it's like, the nice cookies, I don't want to give those up, and so I'll give them the cheap cookies. It's okay, you're moving in the right direction if you're giving cookies at all. But it's the kind of generosity that Peter is calling for, of opening ourselves, giving ourselves to others. And he says, notice, do it without grumbling. See, don't grumble because your food bill goes up. Or because you'd rather watch a football game or because something gets broken. I mean, maybe it's big, you need to talk that out, but like you should understand that when you're asking people into your home, it's going to be costly. 
but do it with an eye to heaven. Interestingly, Peter commands them to show hospitality here, not to outsiders, but to one another. Now, why would he say that? Well, because the gospel itself is a message that invites outsiders like you and me in. And we are being invited in, not just to somebody's house down the street, but in the house of the living God. How hospitable has God been to you and me? Think about this. Jesus was the ultimate outsider who God sent into this world with nowhere to lay his head. And he died on a cross rejected by his own and forsaken by God. But when God raised him up from the dead, he sent messengers out to invite people from every tribe, tongue, and people to join him at his house where there is plenty of room, the best food, and you never overstay your welcome. That's the message of the gospel. That's why we're hospitable, because God is. See, our hospitality to one another looks so much like our hospitable God. You image God as you are hospitable to others. And a good host smells like heaven. Doesn't he and she? See, we ought to treat others like we want to be treated. Just like the nearness of the end can cause us to be confronted with our own self-centeredness, so can hospitality. And when you're hospitable, you start to see things that you cling to tightly to because you don't have a right perspective on heaven. You know, you got some picture that got broken. Well, guess what? Like, the views in heaven are much better, right? It only gets better from here. See, it's easy to grumble about the stress of cleaning before and after, preparing food, expenses, folks overstaying their welcome, kids breaking your stuff, the time that it costs, all of those things and more. But I guarantee you that you will not be thinking of any of that stuff when Jesus shows up. In fact, those losses are investments in heavenly treasures. And that's where the storing of our stuff is. He also says, second, not just to share your home, but share your gifts with others. He says this in verses 10 to 11. Look there with me. He says this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, Peter also tells Christians to give what you get. God's given every Christian spiritual gifts. Every Christian for the purpose of serving one another and building up the church. That's what he tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. He goes through that long list of gifts, gifts of either service or of word. They're word gifts, they're service gifts. We see both of those here in this text. And he's saying, those have been given to you, catch this, not for you just to sit and enjoy it by yourself. Catch this, not to make much of yourself before others, but instead to build up the church. It is for the good of others, to give what you get. Every Christian has been given spiritual gifts, and they are all called God's grace. I love the word for gifts here, charisma. Same word for gift, it also means grace. You have graces that have been given to you for the purpose of encouraging others. Well, there may be a tendency to, to take credit for how great a gift is, as though you deserved it. But the Bible says that gifts haven't been given to us for the good. They have been given us not for our own selves, but for the good of others and the glory of God. The diversity of gifts demonstrates God's varied grace. And Peter talks about two basic categories, the word gifts and the service gifts. Word gifts like teaching, prophesying, 
tongues, exhortation, all give glory to God. Serving gifts like giving, leading, mercy, helps, healing, and miracles glorify God. But notice those who speak do so as those who speak oracles of God. Do you see that? They are those who are speaking oracles of God. It's God's words that they are giving to God's people. And sometimes people with speech gifts lack appreciation for those with service gifts. And sometimes those with service gifts believe they work harder than those with speech gifts. But did you see that service gifts too are just as dependent on God's grace in verse 11? It says there, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, I think... We can work on this exegesis later, but I think that means that when we change diapers in the nursery and when we play drums and when we serve food at Pulse in just a minute, all of that is being done in strength that God provides. See, we're actually doing God's work in God's strength to God's glory in these tasks. And I think that we get better at it when we remember what it is that we're doing. We're not doing this because we have to. We're doing it because we get to, and what we're getting to do even more than the thing in front of us is bringing glory to God. See, Peter gives God the glory for the strength you serve others with. Whether we speak or serve Christ's body, all is to the glory of God and through Jesus Christ. I love how he ends. You know, this world is temporary. Those things that we seem to be so fixated on that distract us from the end that is coming, they are temporary, temporal things that are passing away. They are being eaten away by either rust or moths. See, our strivings, they will cease. But did you see what he ends with? God's glory and dominion, they are eternal. That's what we were made for, eternal life with the eternal God in his eternal kingdom with his eternal people. So here's our main application this morning as we close. Fourth, the apocalypse is coming, so join a community group. (laughs) Just hang with me. Famed Anglican preacher and evangelical leader John Stott, he once said that small groups are indispensable for our growth into spiritual maturity. In fact, that's what most theologians that I've ever uh, read in contemporary church life has said. In fact, my own experience over the last two decades is that community groups have been an indispensable part of growing a healthy church. Community groups are, help, are helpful, and they help encourage the kind of hospitality and fellowship that the Bible recommends and it calls for, like we just read about. In fact, J.I. Packer calls this kind of fellowship that we want to encourage and to make more of vital to a Christian spiritual health and flourishing. So if you want to flourish, I, I think that these are important for you. Now, we have groups that either meet two or, or four times a, a month, and they are at homes throughout the city of our members. And we need more groups. So we're aiming for five, as Stephen's going to tell you in a minute, uh, this year. But let me give you four quick reasons for our community groups other than the apocalypse. But the apocalypse is all over it. One, greater intimacy. You know, just because you can't know everybody intimately at Trinity Bible Church doesn't mean that you can't know some people intimately and be made known and be known by others in intimate ways. Please hear me. You were made to be known and to know others. You were made for community. There is no answer to the problem of the human hunger for companionship other than community. That's what we were made for, not just now, but forever. 
See, community groups create a context where you can know, pray for, and serve others in a way that you just can't in a larger group this size. And God created us to be known, and we believe that these community groups help us to meet that desire, that longing that every human heart has for community. Second, spiritual protection. You need them for spiritual protection. See, intimacy leads to responsibility and accountability that protects against anonymity and invisibility. I'll say that again. Intimacy leads to responsibility and accountability. And that protects against anonymity and invisibility. See, my belief is that none of us really truly want to be invisible. We want to be seen. We want to be known. We want to matter. We know that we were made with dignity because we were made in the image of God. And we desire to be a part of something more than ourselves. So, Who's going to love you enough to come after you if your life falls apart? James 5 and Galatians 6 speaks of others coming after a wandering brother or sister to save their soul from danger. The biblical authors see this as an important thing that you have someone who's willing to chase you down if you're falling away. Who's willing to step into your messy life? When things get messy, I know that people like to like come around for a celebration, but when life gets messy, who's willing to come and wrap you up and help you? And it's not just pastors who are called to this. The New Testament says other members are. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Maybe Jesus will come back. Or maybe you will lose your job. Or you'll get caught up in some sin that you can't get away from. Or you'll find your marriage in a difficult place. And we believe that community groups are the first line of defense against these kinds of things. Your community group should strive to know where you are day in and day out in the rhythms of life to help you make it to the end. Third, using your gifts. God has given every Christian spiritual gifts, word gifts and service gifts for the building up of the church. And community groups give us another opportunity to use those gifts to build up the body in smaller context. I've seen leaders raised up in community groups, musicians able to to share in community groups in ways that they might not be able to on Sunday morning. Cooks can surprise us with cake. Isn't that good? Encouraging the body, building us up, making us feel loved, and especially when they know what kind of cake we like. Encouragers. Encouragers can lift up the brokenhearted. And some of you have the gift of encouragement, and that community group is going to just pulsate with love because of the way that you encourage others. Others can stay and help clean up to lighten the load of hosts, and all can pray together for God's help. And maybe you don't feel like a great evangelist either, but you can invite your non-Christian friend or husband, and someone in the group who does have the gift of evangelism can share Christ with them. Just a great context to share more of the gifts that we have. And fourth, hospitality is beautiful, hard, commanded, and rewarding. Did you catch that? Hospitality, it is beautiful, hard, commanded, and rewarding. See, I deeply appreciate what Rosaria Butterfield says in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says this, Radically ordinary hospitality does not simply flow from the day-to-day interest of the household. You must prepare spiritually. The Bible calls spiritual preparation warfare. Radically ordinary hospitality is indeed spiritual warfare. And don't underestimate the power of deepening community through hospitality in such a way that it actually communicates the power of the gospel to others. This is what gospel community looks like in real time. See, these groups are the front line of things like planning weddings, engagement parties, getting encouragement with your marriage, throwing showers, celebrating birthdays, getting help moving. Those things are really, we are pressing those into the community groups. Uh, We've grown by a lot over the last couple of years. 
And what that means is we need to know how to care for one another better. And if we're going to do that and continue to grow, we think as elders that we need community groups to be the front line of these kinds of things that have been broadly practiced by the church. So here's what this means. Opting out means missing out. Now, I I want to say that lovingly, kindly, gently as a pastor. But if you're telling us, if you come to us and you're like, hey, pastor, I, I don't feel connected and I feel like it's everybody else's fault. Well, here's what I'm going to ask you. Are you in gathered worship on Sundays, like most Sundays? And and you'll say, yes, and maybe you're exaggerating, but yes. And then second, I'm going to say, okay, so are you in a community group? And you'll say, no. And I'll say like, well, then I understand. Now, I am not saying that if you're in a community group, that that's going to solve all of your relational problems. We are sinners, uh, like there are all kinds of times we've got plenty of avenues for relationship and yet feel lonely because we're broken, living in a broken world, and we're also sinners, and so things don't always work right. But if you're not in gathered worship, and you're not in community groups, and you're not in a one-to-one discipleship group, it wouldn't surprise me that you're feeling lonely and disconnected. So we're encouraging you to be part of these things so that you will feel connected, that you will feel the community that you want. And opting out means missing out. Does that make sense? Like you were saying, we, we, we aren't like going along with the program of the church that you're trying to use to encourage us to have community and have meaningful relationships with others. That's not how we want to do it. That's how we do it. And if you feel disconnected and you aren't part of a community group, that makes sense to us. So get plugged in and bless others. God wants you to. He wants you to use your gifts to be an encouragement to others. So gospel doctrine plus gospel community equals power. And this is the way that we're looking to to play this out. Now, Stephen is going to share about community groups in just a minute. He'll share next week. But first, I have a quick gospel on the ground video that demonstrates how our community groups can walk with you through life when it gets messy. And then Stephen's going to speak to us real quick. 